Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Ted Brightus is a professor of investigative journalism at the University of Florida. The position he holds is one created in honor of Rob Heisen, one of the Capital Gazette staffers who was killed in 2017. He's also had a long career as an investigative journalist and editor. His team won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting on New York Police Department intelligence programs. He and his teams have done prominent work related to Hillary Clinton's email server, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates' covert foreign lobbying, and he was also part of the AP team that projected winners in four presidential elections, including 2016. And one of the, he was the administrator of the Collier Prize and one of the seven judges that was won by the reporting team from the Miami Herald that we talked to in our last episode. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you. So let's get a little sense of your origin story. And I was listening to an interview last night where you talked about knowing that you wanted to do this in middle school. So I'm curious if there was something in your upbringing that lent itself to investigative reporting and then teaching it. Yeah, you actually have to go all the way back to 1970 and you got to go to Vietnam and and a young husband and a father to a toddler is a lieutenant in the Army Corps of Engineers and he's assigned to clear a mountaintop for a howitzer base. And he's a former state high school football champion from Miami Defensive back, also played Division I football in, at the Citadel, the military academy. And a mortar attack in the morning, you know, happens on that mountaintop, and he loses both legs and his right arm. And he's near death, and he's dragged three times out during the shelling to, uh, to Army medical helicopters before he can be flown to a field hospital in Chulai, and then eventually on to Saigon and and then finally on to Walter Reed Hospital in Washington. And that was Ted Brightus Sr. That was my father. And, you know, our hometown newspaper, the Miami Herald, decides that this athletic young Ted Brightus should be the public face of the human toll from the Vietnam War. And he's the, you know, the heroic local athlete who earns the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star and was you know, emblematic of the loss that other veterans from South Florida and elsewhere had suffered in Vietnam in this, in this war. And Knight Ritter, who owns the Miami Herald, they, they send their war correspondent, James McCartney, to visit my father during his recovery in Saigon at the hospital. And we, you know, my, the family, my mom and, and myself, we haven't even seen my dad at that point. We're just getting telegrams, really serious concerning telegrams about his situation. And McCartney writes in a column that's published in the Herald that my, that my dad is swathed in bandages and he, he can barely speak. And he's slowly lifting up his left arm and he's clenching his fist and sweat is dripping off his face and he's exercising because he knows that one day if he survives, that left arm is all he's got. And McCartney says that he talks to the doctors and the doctors give my dad a one in 10 chance of surviving. And the doctor says, he might just make it. He's got, he's got the motivation, he wants to live. And, you know, over the years, the Herald kept tabs on us. They, they updated their readers, you know, when we moved into a new home that was wheelchair accessible, when my sister was born a couple years after his end, my dad finished his master's degree in engineering uh, at the University of Miami. 
he becomes a Paddy certified scuba dive master. And he takes up competitive wheelchair racing later in his life and carries the Olympic torch in 96. And later he competes twice for the United States in the Paralympic Games in Greece and Australia. And so there's these stories just, you know, written about us and, and sort of updating the community about our, about our lives. And all this time I'm growing up and I'm thinking, this is amazing to be the focus of this news coverage and to see how these stories can inspire and comfort readers and veterans and their families. And, you know, I, you know, I inherited my mother's English skills more than my dad's acumen with algebra and calculus. So engineering <laughs> was not really in the cards. And so by the time I'm in junior high in Miami, I, you know, I gravitate to the student newspaper and I decide this is going to be my career. I, I love this. And, and I had these great teachers through junior high and through high school and then in college at Missouri. And I, I really, I had my life all spelled out. I was going to be a reporter. I was going to win a Pulitzer by age 30. I was going to become an editor. And then I'm going to retire to teach college journalism full time. And it, it pretty much works out that way. It wasn't, I wasn't until it was 34 <laughs> before the Pulitzer <laughs> game. I was on the team at the Wall Street Journal that won the Pulitzer for breaking news for coverage of the 9-11 attacks. And I was in Washington. I saw the plane hit the Pentagon and I was the first one to call it into the office. But you, you'd mentioned the, the Pulitzer in 2013 that we won for the uh, NYPD series on um, uh, spying on innocent Muslims in New York. And you know, I was so excited. I, I called my, my, I tracked down my junior high school newspaper advisor from three decades earlier. And I said, you know, hey, I just wanted to let you know this happened. You know, the Pulitzer Prize. And, and, I'm, cr and I'm crushed. I'm disappointed because she says, hey, that's terrific. But you're not my first student to win a Pulitzer. I've actually had three. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Brings me right back to life. Okay, so your career, I read off the things that you're best known for. There's a lot of other stuff, a lot, a lot of other stuff before that. Was there a turning point moment for you where it crystallized that you were, that you were like, hey, not only am I going to do this, but I'm going to be really impactful with it? You know, I, I had such great teachers. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into, into teaching journalism is, is to help sort of return the favor. Teachers who who, you know, who encouraged me to take risks and tackle these really big investigative reporting projects. Even, even in the 80s at Missouri, I wrote a piece about the local police department that was moving from revolvers to a particular model of a semi-automatic pistol. And these pistols were, were resulting in negligent discharges all over the United States. And, and, you know, suspects were getting shot and killed and police officers themselves were shooting themselves. And I'm 20 years old. And, you know, and a couple of years later, you know, I'm, I'm at AP and I cat and, and my boss says, I, I pitched the idea, I'm going to catalog all of the political contributions from all the special interests to the, to the lawmakers, state lawmakers in Indiana to track political favors behind the scenes. And this has never been done before. And, you know, I mean, now it's, it's, you know, now it's, it's, sort of always done, but it's tracked electronically. But, you know, back in back in the early 90s, it was all kept on paper. And so we, you know, I created a data system and we input all the data 
And we were, we were just killing it with these, these great accountability stories about this lawmaker taking money from this industry and, and turning out these legislative favors. And I just, you know, I had, I just had such great bosses over the years to, to let me do that stuff. Was there, and I've asked this of a few of the most veteran people that we've talked to, was there a mistake earlier in your career that proved to be a real like learning moment that you carried with you for the next 30 years or so? Yeah. So there's actually two, if if you've got the time to entertain them, but, and and I share these with my students because I think it really is really important to learn from your mistakes and, and sort of figure out what not to do. So in the early 90s, I'm an AP reporter and I'm in Oklahoma and I'm at a crime scene outside a house where this violent felon is holding his grandmother hostage in a standoff and it's gone on for days and police have tried to talk him out and that's failed and they actually send in a robot with a camera to try to scope out what's going on and he blows it to pieces and they have to drag what's left of it out on a rope. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, after I think we were in the second or even the third day that the SWAT team was going to have to to storm the storm the house with guns blazing. And so I get on the phone with my desk editor and we start building what we call a preparedness, right? It's a story that's written, but it's held internally as though the event had already happened. So we can update it and then broadcast it when the facts emerge. And it's just faster to do it that way than to start from scratch. And so the draft story says police stormed the house and shot the hostage taker. And it includes the background about, you know, what had been happening over the previous several days and who the hostage was. And the editor gives it to the broadcast desk to get it ready to publish, but we're not, we're not going to publish it. And pretty soon the pagers for all of the reporters from all the other news organizations around me start, start beeping. And one of them says, AP's reporting the police stormed the house. <laughs> and I said, wait, what? I'm on the phone with my editor. And I said, you didn't publish that, did you? And he said, no, 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 I didn't publish it. But he gave it to the broadcast desk and the broadcast desk inadvertently published it thinking that it had already happened. And so, you know, the story gets blasted out coincidentally right as police storm the house and shoot the hostage taker. So, but it was really embarrassing and, you know, it could have had horrible consequences and I've, but I've always since then been very careful about handling preparedness since then, you know, we, we pre-write people's obituaries as though they've already died. And, you know, there are all kinds of stories that we do behind the scenes, but boy, (laughs) I always put a big note at the top now, do not publish, do not publish. So the other one is years later, I'm in Washington and I was assigned to cover one of the biggest business trials of the century. The Justice Department is suing Microsoft for antitrust violations. And and the government wants one of the most successful technology companies broken up into pieces. And, uh, you know, including the appeals, that case, that trial went on for nearly two years. And one day after court, it's raining, it's pouring down rain. And I flagged a cab in front of the courthouse and I see the trial judge, the federal judge come walking out. And I know that that Judge Jackson walks home almost 22 city blocks to Georgetown every night and it's pouring. And I said, so I rolled down the window and I said, Judge, you want to share my cab? Now he knows, he knows who I am. He knows I'm a reporter. I've been in the courtroom since day one of the trial. I was the only, I was the only reporter to, to score an interview with Bill Gates. 
during the trial. And the judge gets in the cab and he starts uh, he starts a tirade because Microsoft's chief executive officer, Bill Gates, won't show up in his court in his courtroom. He says that Gates is a coward, and he notes that you know Bill Gates testified to Congress just a couple blocks from my courthouse, but he won't he won't show up in my courtroom. And he, he pretty much makes clear like he's going to rule against Microsoft, and he's no fan of this company or Bill Gates. And I can't, I mean, I'm sitting in the back seat. I can't believe he's saying all this in front of a journalist who's been covering the trial. And so, you know, I call him that evening when he gets home and I said, look, I can't pretend that you didn't say all these things to me right in the middle of the trial. This is news and I'm going to write a story quoting. And he says, oh, you can't do that. That was all off the record. And I said, that's not how this works. You can't, you know, unilaterally and after the fact say something was off the record after you already blurted it out in front of a reporter. And, you know, you're somebody who deals with reporters all the time. I mean, you're not, you're not just, you know, somebody who suddenly finds themselves in the spotlight. And so, you know, you should know better. And so he offers to cut a deal with me. And he says, if I, if I sit on his comments, he will sit down with me for an exclusive one-on-one interview at the end of the trial, after the verdict, and he's going to walk me through all of his reasoning and review all of the testimony and what he thought about all the witnesses. You know, and I, I talked about it with my editor, and my editor says that's a pretty good deal. I think we should, I think we should hold off and and get the exclusive with the judge afterward. But we shouldn't have waited. We should have published those remarks right then. It was news. You know, the judge eventually rules against Microsoft, but he gets thrown off the case because the appeals court says he exhibited bias against Microsoft. And they had to do a whole other trial where Microsoft ends up faring much better. But I I tell my students, don't ever take a deal like that. That, you know, when when you have what you think is a real blockbuster story, report the story. Don't don't get sucked into this, you know, well, there there could be a better story if you if you keep this secret. Fast forwarding here to the present time. In the context of all of the content, the Collier Prize nominees that you've read, all the investigative journalism that you've done, everything that you've looked at in the past, what is the state of investigative journalism in the United States right now? It's surprisingly good. We had we had more than six nominations to the Collier Prize, 60 applicants, and some news organizations did such fantastic work that they were able to nominate, you know, more than one from their own newsroom. The state of journalism is is quite good. These were reliable, credible, accurate, you know, investigative packages that that really uncover sometimes criminal wrongdoing, sometimes negligence by the by state government agencies. And so, you know, one one thing that we did see was, and we've seen this emerging for a few years now, is the increasing use of partnerships. And that project that they did was partly funded by ProPublica, which is a whole other news organization. But ProPublica chipped in some money to help pay for, for, for the work. And we're seeing those kinds of partnerships where, where news organizations that in the past might have competed against each other, they've got some aligned interest. And so they're, you know, they're sharing costs, they're sharing reporting expertise, they're sharing editing expertise. And you know, projects like this, big complicated projects can get done more expediently, can get done more efficiently and more cost effective. Okay, so that's a trend in the field as far as overall scope goes. What about in terms of 
investigative reporters nowadays, you teach, you work with students close to graduation at the University of Florida. What traits do you need to be a good investigative reporter these days? Well, the first thing you need is to care about being accurate and, and you have to be careful. You know, we are, we are writing about incredibly sensitive subjects. We sometimes write about litigious organizations or institutions or people. So we may have to defend ourselves in court. So you, you need to be solid. You, you want to have a strong sense of right and wrong. You want to have a commitment to accountability. You know, institutions and organizations and, and governments, you know, they should be doing what they're expected to be doing. And if they're not doing it, we should call them out. You want to be fair. You want to be honest. You want to have transparency. You know, I, I, I teach my students, you know, if, if you're writing a hard story about someone, let them know this is going to be a hard story. You know, this is not going to be a, a sort of a fluffy profile. You want to be, you want to be upfront with, with people. You mentioned in 1990 that you built like a data set, a database essentially at that time. I'm guessing you did it on a Mac, like the original Macintosh or, you know, an Apple IIe or something of, of that nature. What are the technological tools and things uh, in technology that are an aspiring investigative reporter needs to learn? Yeah, so... We've come, we've come such a long way. The, the data tools, especially, that we have at our fingertips, you know, being able to, to you know, just as a, as a layman, not even a sort of a data expert, being able to query, you know, 20 or 30 million records. We have classes here in the journalism school at UF where we teach data journalism, but every day my reporters, my student reporters, we're using Florida's files on 15 million registered voters. We've got millions of traffic tickets uh, through. You know, we've got parking ticket databases. You know, it's it's just all of these data sets that we we find come in handy for for different purposes. And so, yeah, you want to have the ability to to you know run a SQL query or do a pivot table in Excel to be able to sort and analyze data. But to be able to scrape data uh, off of websites, that's, those are incredibly important skills for, for today's young journalists. Carol and Daniel's project uh, took two years to do. They had thousands of pages of records. They had a very large number of interviews that they did. I just did a project, not investigative, where I interviewed 40 people and had 30 hours of audio. And trying to organize that um, took me months and it was, uh, and they talked about how it took them months to to do what they did. How can reporters be effective in organizing notes, quotes, and data? Yeah, you you have to be organized. Again, you you know, I, I've I've had I've had reporters who work on my teams come in with with two inch bound you know binders that are that have different tabs for different interviews and transcripts. You know, we we make you make a copy of everything that you've ever consulted, whether it's a, a particular document or a, a you know a, a transcript of an interview. Lists of all of your contacts for the stories, how to get a hold of them, when's the last time you talked with them, you know what were the circumstances of that, and and partly you want to be organized because one of my jobs as the editor at the at the end of the day is to come in and challenge you run this project through the crucible of the editing process and try to tear it apart and show its weaknesses and show where we may have gotten something wrong. 
and and you need to be able to to refute all of these challenges. Now there's so, a there's so a push, gotta, gotta yeah yeah there's a push pull there because we were talking just before we started taping about rapid response. Work with an editor, and I can only imagine how many edits the winning piece went through, and like I can only imagine what investigative work requires with regards to editing. Is there an example maybe from your career that would show how tightly vetted uh, work of that nature gets? Again, we are we are so concerned that that the story be correct and accurate and right and fair and also that it that it stand up in court. And you know, I, in my in my 30 years, I was only sued one time and the and the judge threw it out because the story was accurate, the story was fair, and the story was backed up by by documents. But you always you always are are running against the possibility that you're going to get dragged into court and you're going to have to prove yourself that you were that you were accurate. So, you know, the diligence is, you know, every fact, every date, the spelling of every name, and it doesn't mean that we always get it right. I mean, we're still human beings and we still make mistakes, but there are enormous safety nets and protocols and procedures to catch these errors before they get published. And, you know, it, as the news industry has, has, has shrunk, you know, we've lost layers of editing and layers to the copy desks and things like that. And so, so there are fewer sets of eyeballs going on these projects. And I think that's a sort of a really risky premise. You know, that, that, that's not gonna bode well. You, you really need to, to run these, these stories through the ringer. What was the, the process like for the coverage that you did in 2016 leading up to the presidential election? Yeah, so, so the, you know, there were, there, were, there were a number of stories that we were prosecuting in 2016 ahead of the presidential election. You know, the, the, one of the biggest ones was Hillary Clinton's email server. And we actually wrote, we actually wrote that story in 24 hours. We, we had heard through a leak from Congress that she had used an, an, an email account, an email address that was not a State Department address to conduct official business. And the New York Times actually was the first to break that story that she'd been using this, this personal email account. But, you know, I got together with my reporters and I said, well, where was the, you know, that's, that's going to be a key question. Is it, is it in a data center that's protected and backed up and has, you know, has all sorts of security experts keeping it safe? Or, you know, is this just something being, and I, I remember literally saying this is being, you know, is it something being run out of her basement? And we, we used publicly available internet uh, mail exchange records at the time to go back in time and look at where that email address was pointed to on the internet physically. And when, when the Clinton's home address in Chappaqua popped up on the records, you know, I turned to the, the reporter next to me and I said, holy cow, <laughs> she's doing this out of her house. And, and the reporter, Jack Gillum, and I both are sort of nerds anyway, and we had actually run email servers out of our houses. So we know what's involved. And so we knew what records to, to track and look for. But we also, you know, we had been involved for many years trying to get a hold of Hillary Clinton's emails because we were trying to vet her as a candidate at the State Department. So we had been filing FOIA requests, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests with the State Department to say, you know, like, I want to see copies of the emails that she wrote about this issue or that issue. And the State Department kept coming back and saying, 
we don't have them. We, we can't find any of her emails. And so we knew something was, was, was askew. And in fact, after the, the email server story came out and we, we wrote it, you know, and, and, and I think what I'm most proud about is that story holds water even today. Every line in that story was borne out. And, and the, the significance that we were ascribing to her practice of doing this and the fact that she uniquely had done this and no other government official had ever been identified as doing this. But you know, after the email server story came out, we actually sued the State Department in, in federal court for failing to turn over and failing to, to manage the, the government records. And the State Department paid us $154,000 to settle the case, paid all of our legal fees you know, for, for years of trying to go after this. But, you know, that story, when it was, when it was public, there were nine days when Hillary Clinton refused to either acknowledge that we were right or dispute that we were wrong. And, you know, people outside our newsroom were starting to have doubts about, you know, well, maybe AP got it wrong. I mean, it seems like she would have, she would have come forward by now, nine whole days. And then she, she, she has a speech at the United Nations and admits everything and says, you know, I didn't do anything against the rules, but, and, and, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think the rules were pretty clear that she wasn't supposed to be doing that. But yeah, for, for nine days, we were, we were left hanging and she had told all of her people who were involved, stop talking about this. Don't, don't say anything. And, and some of them were, were very upfront with us when we would talk to them and they would say, look, you know, I'm under orders not to talk about this with you, with you especially. And it should be pointed out, too, that you also broke stories, significant, very significant stories about things in the other party. Yeah, we, you know, we focused on President Trump's, then candidate Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, also his national security advisor, Michael Flynn. But we exposed Manafort's illegal foreign lobbying and, um, you know, ended up getting him indicted and imprisoned. He pleaded guilty. He went to prison, got pardoned, and, and was released. And he's got a book coming out in September, so I can't wait to hear what he's going to say about us. But uh, his business partner from years earlier, long before he was affiliated with the Trump campaign, his business partner was a billionaire Russian uh, oligarch, uh, Oleg Deripaska. And uh, Deripaska sued us over our coverage about his business interactions with Paul Manafort, he wanted, he wanted desperately to find out how we had uncovered all of this stuff and, and who was our source. And the judge threw the case out before we even got to discovery. So we were, we were fine. Speaking of which, the Politico breaking the story the other day about how the Supreme Court is going to rule on abortion and the quest now to find out how did they get that? How did, how did that leak? Um, do you have any perspective on that that you wish to, to share? Because that's going to be a fascinating story to watch. Yeah. So I've, I've been wrapped up in government leaks investigations a few times in my career. And it's, it's really scary when you're the journalist who's written a story that suddenly the FBI wants to know, how did you find that out? I've had the FBI agents uh, show up at my front door demanding my emails the FBI went to Verizon and, and turned over months of my, my home phone records without, without any warning to me. You know, the, the government 
figured out everyone that I had talked with for months, uh, whether it was on the story that they cared about or other stories. And it's just, you know, it's a, it can be a scary, it can be a scary process. And I, I you know, I, ironically, Josh Gerstein, one of the two reporters who wrote that piece for Politico, used to report specifically on leaks investigations in Washington. So Josh is pretty uniquely situated to know how these leaks investigations are going to run and, and what are the consequences here. You know, we are very sensitive in journalism to protecting our sources, especially our confidential sources. And, you know, you, you talked about the data work and how do you stay organized? And, you know, we, we use a lot of the cloud services, right? We use Google Docs and we use the one, one cloud and I, I'm sorry, iCloud and OneDrive and, and Dropbox. But we also are very sensitive not to use those, those cloud services when we're dealing with sensitive stories like this, because those are operated by third-party companies. And the FBI, if the FBI or the government wants to, wants to find out who our sources are, they'll simply go to, you know, Google or uh, Microsoft or, uh, you know, Dropbox with a warrant. And those companies, they'll turn, they'll turn over all your secrets. And so on the really sensitive stories, and, and we had a lot of them, we, we, we work strictly locally off encrypted hard drives and encrypted thumb drives because, you know, if the government's going to get it, they're going to have to come through our front door and they're going to have to get it. And then they're going to have to either ask us to decrypt it or they're going to have to break our encryption because we're not going to tell them who our sources are. Certainly movies have been made about this. And I'll ask you in a second. I have a question that's related to uh, movies and books uh, that you might recommend, but I can't pass up the chance if we're going to talk about 2016 making the call on presidential election winners. Can you give us kind of a broad strokes inside the room perspective on what that's like and what particularly it was like in 2016? So, you know, the Associated Press is sort of a de facto race caller. You know, when AP calls an election, we're not saying who's winning at that moment. When we call a race, it means that candidate has won the race. There's enough, there's enough evidence, there's enough votes coming in that we know who the winner is. Uh, and there are only seven of us in the company at any one time calling these races. I started doing it back in 04. And, you know, we study these races for months before the election. I mean, it really becomes almost a separate full-time job. And, you know, you find and you analyze all of the polls and you're looking for consistency or inconsistency. We use these incredibly sophisticated mathematical models, these statistical models that are applied to real-time vote counts in every single state. And then, you know, they're reapplied, you know, microseconds later. And so, you know, you have all of these quality assurance checks and it goes through, you know, two or three layers of quality assurance checks, you know, within within AP. So if a, if a county or a township that traditionally has voted Republican suddenly swings blue that night, you know, there's a big red flag there and we're alerted immediately and we're going to we're going to investigate before we accept those results. So there's, it's a it's a real sort of quality assurance check. And we don't say, you know, candidate X is winning. We say candidate X has won. Some politicians, you know, hate that. They just don't understand what we're doing. Carly Farina was the former CEO of Hewlett Packard, and she was running for the U.S. Senate in California back in 2010. And I had enough votes in my models at that point that night to project that her opponent, Barbara Boxer, was going to win easily. 
And so AP, you know, we called the race and, and Farina's campaign manager gets on the phone with me in Washington. And she says, you know, we're not conceding. We're actually ahead by 700,000 votes right now. Like you're out of your mind calling this race. How, you know, we're winning. How could you call the race the other way? And I said, look, the, the math doesn't lie. And you're going to lose by a million votes by the end of the night. So I'm satisfied and I'm sorry that you're not, but like the AP call stands. And at the end of the night, she won by a million and 751 votes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the models are just incredibly sophisticated and the people who work in them are, are brilliant. And, you know, and the vote counts are, are just incredibly reliable. When, when Charlie Chris lost the governor's race in Florida to Rick Scott in 2014, I, I called that race too. And Chris, you know, was standing next to the AP correspondent he, and, and I'm talking to the AP correspondent telling him, okay, we're calling the race for Scott. You can tell Chris, like, sorry, sorry, you lost. And Chris gets on the phone with me on the line in Washington. And I kind of walked him through the math and he asks a couple of questions like, well, have you considered this? Have you considered, you know, absentee votes? Yes, yes, I've already accounted for those. And he says, okay, I guess you're right. And he and he calls Scott and concedes. So, you know, sometimes they sometimes they understand they're professional about it. But there's so much pressure to get it right and to get it first. And when you're when you're a projections analyst, you're actually measured your job performance. You're measured by the seconds ahead, uh, by how you called the race ahead of like the networks. And if you call a race wrong, you lose your job, like you're fired. So it is very high stakes, but it's it's so much fun and just intellectually challenging. How many times was it said, are you sure, in 2016 when you were in the final like seconds of that? Yeah, so funny story. So AP had not called Wisconsin, and Wisconsin was my state to call that night among about 10 states that I had. And I was... I was ready. I mean, I was sure. And there was, you know, there was one anomaly in one of the counties, but, you know, I had already run it down and had determined there weren't, there weren't nearly enough votes to help tilt the election the other way around. So, so I was telling my boss, you know, like we could call Wisconsin. He, you know, and I was hyper-focused just on this one state. He was of course, looking at the whole board and realizing that as soon as we call Wisconsin, that's going to put Trump over the over the bar and, and you know, he's going to be declared the president of the United States. And we want to make sure that we are right on this. And so, you know, he kept coming back to me saying, have you checked that one county? And, I, you know, yes, I kind of walked them through my math and I said, look, just, you know, just for grins. I mean, if you, you know, it, the, the vote in that county is trending, you know, this and if you double Clinton's margin in that county, he's still going to win. So, uh, you know, it's not going to change the outcome. And finally, you know, finally, I got him to to move on it. And AP, I think at 2.30 in the morning, was the first to announce that Trump was going to be president. But Were you glad I, to sit I, out 2020? No, I miss it terribly. Yeah, this is, this is really, it really is exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I had a little bit of it in 2020 at, at UF. You know, I was helping run some of the local election coverage, some of our congressional races and our, our of course, our, our, our gubernatorial race in, in 2018. And, and, you know, I had sort of replicated some of the some of the functionality of what AP did with spreadsheets and databases and was able to kind of walk my students like this is how it this is how it's going to sure. work when you get a job. So, wow. 
All right, so two questions to close. One, is there a void or shortage that an aspiring reporter can look to fill? The uh, person that asked that uh, was, I had an intern for a while, and she would ask that of every person that we had because she was an aspiring journalist at the time. Yeah. So, you know, journalism is a trade. It's not an art. You can you can learn this. It's a specialized trade, and I'm, you know, I'm happy to be at the University of Florida and, and, and you know, teach some pretty sophisticated journalism practices. But... Getting that specialized subject matter expertise, climate change, covering the intelligence community. You want to cover the CIA or the the DNI in Washington, you're pretty much going to name your gig and name your salary. Those those reporters who cover the FBI and the DOJ and do it well and are well-sourced with you know, high-level officials and have an understanding of how the system interoperates with the, with the executive branch and the legislative branch, and even the judicial oversight with the FISA court. These are these are fairly sophisticated, you know, mechanisms, and you can you can pretty much call your shots. You know, they have negative unemployment; they're constantly turning away offers uh, for jobs. So I think you know, I think in election years, covering politics and covering elections are in high demand. We're, we're fortunate in this year with the midterms coming up in November, the graduating class that just, just got out of, of UF, you know, I had pretty much 100% employment, you know, even, even months before they graduated, all of my students had jobs lined up. Um, wow. and, and many of them are covering politics. One student's going to be covering President Trump for the Palm Beach Post in his own backyard in his own hometown newspaper. So she's very excited about that. And but yeah, I think the getting that subject matter expertise, you know, economics, environment, intel, law, you know, law enforcement, those are those are pretty high value jobs right now. So the last question, the podcast is called the Journalism Salute. And I typically would ask you to name someone that you want to salute for your good work, but I want to combine this with another question. I imagine that the reading list for your investigative journalism classes is really, really good. And the the movie list and all the other things that you that you put together are there. Are there things you would recommend among reading movies, documentaries, feature films, whatever, that relate to the field where you would salute the people that were either in them or the people that made them the film for their good work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we read a lot of modern investigative reporting. We want to see how the professionals are doing it. Sometimes we, we, we read it critically. Maybe that's how, that's not how we want it. Because some sometimes investigative journalism is not is not done as well as it could be, but yeah, we watch clips from the films like you described, you know, all the President's Men and Spotlight. I, I show those in my classes. The one on Richard Jewell, for example, to show how investigative reporting can can get off track and and go wrong and and really you know ruin somebody's life. That's that's an important lesson too. But you know, we, we really we we look at. We look at a lot of the entrance to the Collier Prize because that that is sort of sort of the marquee of state government investigative reporting. You know, I think John Cox of the Washington Post does an incredible job. He writes a lot about gun violence and gun rights, and I think you know does does a really sophisticated job of it. But yeah, there there's so many great reporters. I mean, Carol Miller down at the Herald, the deputy investigations editor, is is you know so so intense and so so polished and and just wants to do the best stories and and get them right and have a positive impact on these people's lives so 
That's great. She was, I learned that from talking to her, certainly the intensity. Ted Brightis, thank you for taking the time to join us. Very appreciative that you would give me your time to talk. Sure, sure. Happy to be here. Thank you. On the Journalism Salute, we offer interviews that are thoughtful, diverse, and smart. Kushbu Shah, the editor-in-chief of The Fuller Project. What we do differently is that we center women in our stories, whether they're sources or experts. By Ken Lemon, vice president for broadcast and the chairman of the Black Male Media Project for the National Association of Black Journalists. Promoting diversity and fairness for journalists, and, and that's been kind of a big peg of what we've done lately. We're joined by PJ Cabrera. PJ is a teacher. And we focus on what we do matters because I think a lot of student journalists need to understand that the work that they're doing in their in their newsrooms is important. Bettina Chang, the co-founder and executive editorial director of City Bureau. If we could train more people of color to be journalists, that we would put ourselves on a better path where journalism might be more equitable, might be more responsive to the needs of communities. The journalism Salute allows journalism to show the best of itself. Tune in and join the conversation. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.